The film industry, said David Putnam, in its English language form, is inherently American. This is rubbish. It's time once again to stock up your basket with cinematic spare parts. On offer this week, Satan's Ass, Malcolm McDowell's Orphaned Head, and Barry White's Animated Ankle Spanker. At the checkout, I'm Phil Walsh. And I'm Jim Hall, welcoming you to the seventh edition of Midnight Video. Tonight, Bubble Bubble Toil and Burrows, a history of the occult from Sweden in 1922 via the Interzone in 1968. William Burroughs narrates Haxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages. A host of cosy faces from favourite British sitcoms face violent riots, cannibal dictators, midget dignitaries and mad scientists. We check in at Britannia Hospital. And a bear, a fox and a rabbit take on the mob, corrupt cops and the American dream during their hallucinogenic crime spree for Ralph Bakshi's controversial animation, Coonskin. Show seven, racing along already. Here we are on a Friday night with a bleary-eyed Phil Walsh <laughs> sitting next to me. It's, this is becoming quite common, isn't it? It's been a hard week's gardening for you. It has, it has, but I've, I've got a beer now and I'm, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. going to talk about some good films. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound like you're doing my gardening for me at, uh, <laughs> no. on the no, Hall Estate. No, I'm not. I'm doing uh, some rich people down the road. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just to and the garden, just to go with that because yeah, we're recording today in my flat because Phil was working quite close by. So, just in case, apologies if you hear any noise from my uh, very considerate neighbours stomping around Bastards. over her head. Thanks for listening, still and everything, and feedback uh, as usual, big deal for us. Just wanted to thank anybody who's um, you know leaving feedback um, on our iTunes. That's all all helps. Uh, one there this morning from Marie. Marie H0151, which you say is the dialing code. It's the dialing code for Liverpool, though. Yeah, could be a clue. Possibly this is the same Marie who's also on our discussion thread. It's got some good good um, ideas for films, including Excellent. one with Orson Welles. Uh, but I don't want to assume. But thanks, everyone. And, you know, if, if you want to take a few seconds just writing something not too insulting. No, it's greatly appreciated. Yeah. All, all feedback, even just those little stars. I'm yeah. happy with little stars, especially the little stars. Yeah, I could work in McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> but um, well, we might be soon. You never know. <laughs> um, but also thanks to uh, my friend Chris, um, who's a lecturer at the University of Newport. But I think he sort of put a bizarre word out for us. I think he went into a lecture theatre and saw there was something for students on slasher movies, and went and suggested that they all checked us out. So anybody wow. from the University of Newport. Welcome. Thank Hello. you for thank you for taking the time <laughs> to listen to us. Anything else before we move? I on? just want to say congratulations to uh, Lee Howard, aka Count Fosco, and his wife Hazel, who've got uh, who've been hearing the little pitter patter of tiny feet with their son Harrison, who was born a couple of weeks ago. So. Yes, Count Fosco from the Movie Matters. That's right. Podcast. You still haven't done your Alien. Quadrilogy. No, yeah, c- come on, Lee, sort it out. <laughs> come on. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, congratulations, man. Ho- hope you're getting some sleep. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. Um, right. So, are you ready to? Yes. Are you ready to move on and rub ourselves down with the sap of Lucifer? <laughs> yeah. All the witches had to show their respect for Satan, 
by kissing his ass. Released in 1968, Haxen, Witchcraft Through the Ages, is a re-edit of the silent Swedish documentary of 1922, originally directed by Benjamin Christensen, who also appears as an extremely lively version of Satan. A brief prologue largely made up of models and illustrations soon settles into dramatic reconstructions, including sorcery in action, the legions of hell, a community carrying out a witch hunt, hysterical nuns, and a brief coda covering psychiatric practices of the 20s. This 1968 cut is notorious for Daniel Humer's jazzy soundtrack and a narration from celebrated writer William Burroughs. So I first came across this in uh, Kim Newman and James Marriott's 333 horror movies to see before you die, I think, or something along those lines. Die's good enough. Yeah, and um, yeah, I was really intrigued by it because I know we were both quite keen on watching an old sort of hokey black and white um, horror. A creaky old black and white horror, creaky. yes, because I was keen to do White Zombie, which um, maybe we'll, we'll look at at some point, but... Yeah, definitely. This, um, but you'd not heard of this before? No, I hadn't come across it, um, which I find quite surprising because, you know, I read quite a lot and I watch a lot of films, but... <laughs> yeah, because I think it's a little bit like Melier's Trip to the Moon in that, if, even if you've not seen the original film... Um, the clips tend to crop up an awful lot as illustrations in documentaries. So Melia has the man in the face in the moon with the rocket. Mm. And this, um, the, the, the clip that always gets used is the demon that looks a little bit like a pug-faced dog <laughs> with little horns holding a baby. Yeah, but you've not yeah. seen that used in no, anything? No, I, I mean, it's not stuck in my mind, so perhaps I have, but I've never really like kept on to that image. Okay, but yeah, we're doing the 1968 cut, um, which is famed for this William Burroughs narration. Um, how did you find that? Yeah, I, I really liked it. Um, found it quite amusing and uh, a bit of a curiosity, really. The and I probably need to sort of compare it to the 22 version. I don't know. Well, I need to. You know, I'd like to. I mean, it would be worth doing that. However, we are specifically reviewing the 1968 cut. Oh, so are we? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, sir. Just reiterating that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, as as a standalone film, though itself, it, it was weird. It was um, it was more comical than anything. I found myself just laughing at its. Um, or with it. Well, definitely not with it. I don't think because I don't think it's always that knowing. <laughs> Um, it's strange because there is this Burroughs narration and he occasionally seems to be mocking what's on screen. But at the same time, I'm not, it's not for me to say really, but um, it doesn't sound too professional at his job, or certainly the script has been given. Um, there Which is an interesting point because I was early on I was wondering if it was scripted by him because there are certain moments that have sort of his kind of flourish. But overall, it's quite... It sounds like he's just been given something yeah. to read out. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's what doesn't work for me about this. I I was keen to see this, and I was expecting with Burroughs' involvement, it might even just be a lecture he had or an essay he'd already written, and he'd be reading it out, and it just so happened that this um, documentary was going on in the background because I, I thought it might work in its own right. However, it's him commenting on the film, and I don't think it really works because it has been cut down by about half an hour from the original print, and so you get a lot of things which don't really correspond. Um, like we say, the opening is more a series of models of how um, ancient peoples viewed the world. So you've got these dioramas and models of um, mountain ranges surrounding the land with an iron sky or stars hanging from rods as the Egyptians, I think, viewed the world. That's right. And Burroughs will just be sort of 
saying, oh, this is what this is. Um, here's a woodcut. Yeah. I won't try and do his voice. Here's a woodcut of some people casting a spell and burning a village down, and here's someone casting a spell on a shoe. <laughs> and it just seems like they've put some stuff together and he's had to make the best of it, really. Yeah, it's it's got a sort of um, hasty approach to it, it feels like. Uh, haphazard. Um, haphazard Haxon. Yeah. <laughs> That's the sequel, but I think in some way that might endear it to people. You know, the the very fact that it is um, been put together in such a, such a manic way. Yeah, because I'm not sure what the intent behind this '68 cut is, because it's it's now as old again as the original film is. I'm not sure who the audience were, and I'm not sure in '68 whether they were kind of slightly counterculture stoner figures, and that's why it has this. The remarkable element, the jazzy soundtrack, which is a little misguided, but it did really add something to it because it's um, actually some of it's some of it's appropriate. To, but to begin with, it's much more like uh, cocktail lounge jazz, <laughs> like you get in some hellish Vegas. Uh, well, cocktail lounge, I suppose. Which, when that's playing out against creaky old images of witches coming in with a bundle of twigs opening them and a human hand drops out where well, you've got this vibraphone <laughs> thinking are oh, you expecting Wayne Newton or someone to come out on stage uh, quite soon. I don't think, I'm not sure that was the intention, the intention was to do some sort of peculiar collage. I don't think it's too far-fetched to probably think that whoever decided on doing this was probably off their heads on acid most of the time anyway and they probably thought oh isn't this like a crazy juxtaposition you know we can have um, Jean, what's he called? Jean, Jean Luc, Luc Ponty. Yeah. Um, he was the other Enterprise captain in this yeah. generation, <laughs> like playing his crazy jazz violins and over the top of these silent um, movie images. Because it was yeah. it was banned for a long time in in the states, so yeah. maybe that's part of the appeal as well. Yeah, I suppose because um, yeah, there are other odd things here like nudity, which is I think what got it banned, or maybe just the general tone that it was dealing with the black arts. Mm. Um, but yeah, even seeing nudity from the twenties has a peculiar feel to it. I think you tend to imagine no one had sex before you were born. Yeah, I don't know. I've I've seen images from like Victorian porn magazines. And stuff. Yeah, but I, I but know the ones it's, it's, you mean. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> we share a lot of the same interests, obviously. Um, but yeah, there's something odd about that. There is. There? Yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It was kind of strange, actually, when I when I think about it in retrospect. Um, so I've not seen the 1922 cut, but I'm wondering what kind of approach the original director was making, because this is a real scattershot approach. It, it's witchcraft through the ages, and I, I don't think I was too wrong to imagine it would actually be some kind of documentary that covered... Yeah, it's a misleading title. Yeah, it just seems like he happened to have, probably like a lot of Hollywood films now, just happened to have the props and costumes hanging around. Yeah, did he though? Because it was like the most expensive um, Swedish production ever. Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, two two million kroner in nineteen twenty two. I don't know. I can't even begin to translate that. And all the meatballs you can eat. <laughs> um, no, actually, yeah, you're you're right. There must I'm have sure been a lot of effort gone into the. What ends up on screen does look like there wasn't a lot of planning going on because you do have this odd stuff with the model shots at the beginning, um, then. Well, we don't need to go through it because it was all in the introduction, but it doesn't. It seems very uneven. It's incredibly stylish, and yeah, the the amount of technical wizardry of the time um, on display is, is is quite impressive. But obviously, we're talking now about the '68 version, where it does these huge lurches from um, sections to 
other sections that just don't seem to have any correlation. It's yeah, because the dramatic reconstructions seem like they're telling a story and will then jump on. And whether that's part of it being edited down, although I suspect that's just, well, people had different sensibilities and expectations. Of, mm. It wouldn't be too far to say in the 20s people were just pleased to see something up on screen and they weren't too bothered about... Uh, a script or plot which actually is the way things are now I think yeah yeah it's come full circle <laughs> yeah. yeah but without without, I don't want to sound too down on the whole thing really because there are some um, really fascinating uh, moments um, like we say the visual trickery on display the makeup effects uh, quite impressive yeah there's lots to recommend about this and yeah the scene I mentioned with the pug face demon which I think's I think is well, well known um to some people, to some people. <laughs> but I think that looks great because it is. I'm imagining it must have just been a normal mask because it does move around a bit. But you'd be used to seeing that now and thinking animatronics or something. But also the, the fact it's done in very creaky old black and white can disguise a multitude of sins, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it does look great though. I mean, it's it's better than a Slipknot mask, for example. Oh <laughs> yes, or Lordy the Eurovision winners. From oh yeah, yeah. But also. Um, Benjamin Christensen, the director, who crops up here as Satan, mm. and he's terrific. I think we've we've talked before about silent movie acting having by necessity just being very exaggerated gestures, but he takes that to <laughs> another level, doesn't he? Yeah, it's amazing. He just like jumps up behind he jumps up behind windows usually uh, with these very long fingernails and his tongue sticking out and just his face scrunched up like he's just licked a battery <laughs> and you're never sure if that means his plans have been foiled or is actually that's just how he looks most yeah, of the time that's anyway just how he acts, yeah. but then waving one arm and then both of them really frantically and uh, it was funny but also a little bit disturbing I thought yeah a bit, little bit disconcerting wasn't it because then the shots of him usually when some other action's going on he'll be sitting there with either a pot or a bottle with a stick in it you remember this scene, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure what that's meant to be. I think it's possibly something for grinding corn or doing washing well, it. It's like a huge mess, uh, pestle and pestle water, and isn't water. it? So it's going to grind up some herbs or something. He's grinding his herbs something <laughs> r- rotten here. Um, but yeah, he'll be watching some action and then agitating this stick in the pot very uh, furiously. Rigorously. Yeah. Before, does in, one shot, he, in one shot, I think he flies off while doing it. <laughs> Yeah, he does. He just sort of lifts vertically up. Yeah, Um, but that looks... Obviously, it looks like he's doing something else. Because uh, there's a couple of scenes like those. There's one that's... It just sort of... The camera just sort of passes uh, past whoever's doing it. I don't know if it's him or another character. But this one is is really stuck on him. It's like, oh, my God. (laughs) What else could he be doing? Well, yeah, he does look like he's enjoying his... um, (laughs) The wages of sin. Um, but yeah, and another weird scene where the Burroughs commentary is dealing with one scene, and that scene then ends, but he's still talking about it. And then it cuts to kind of a couple of guys dressed as, I think, dogs or pigs standing at some yeah, double like, doors. Like and that guardians. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you think, what's this got to do with what you're talking about? <laughs> and then he'll, he will start to reference that. Yes, yeah. Um, but th- things like that, you're, you're thinking people could have put a bit more effort in there. Um, but at the same time, it does give it a weird, a weird feeling. So the film does wind up with this um, coda set in what was what was the modern age, the nineteen twenties, mm. um, dealing with psychiatric problems. Well, of women, of women. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, I was pretty puzzled by this because the the meat of the film is more about a community carrying out a witch hunt, and you know, let's not go into all of that. But that was that was to do with the society 
or well, it's still something that goes on. People blaming other people, finding scapegoats. Uh, whatever. It was the Catholic Church streamlining humanity. Really? <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> you got your portfolio ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, to then end with this thing about psychiatric treatment, I d- didn't really get what the no, connection it was, was there. It's incongruous, and yeah. it it just felt a bit like oh, this has just been tagged on, really. Yeah, it had a vague connection with stuff that's vaguely mentioned about people imagining that they've maybe seen things and nowadays you'd say oh this was hysteria yeah like the but nuns that's, having visions wasn't it yeah i think but, it was linked to that but then to show a kleptomaniac and a sleepwalker <laughs> i'm not really sure what uh what and the, like one of the she was accused of stealing wasn't she one of the, the kleptomaniac hmm. and then she's like begging the the gentleman of the uh the shop to let her go and stuff it just all seemed really like well why is this here and hmm. burrows is so uh-huh. he's I don't know. You can't tell he's gleeful about this, but you know, his often his view on women is uh, well, well, renowned, yes. isn't it? Absolutely. I think he thought they were from a different species altogether, <laughs> if I remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not helped because he has that very flat tone. So you're not sure if he is making a joke of it a little bit. Maybe what looking at it with a wry eye, a wry mm. wow. smile, and a twinkle in the eye. <laughs> so I don't know. D- to sum it up, I mean, I would recommend checking this out, but... Um, I definitely think it's worth a watch. Um, I mean, you, I think you get it anyway with the Criterion Collection edition, yeah. don't you? So. Yeah, actually, yeah. Thanks to uh, Ali Catrell for lending, uh, lending me the Criterion edition, which yeah, has both, both cuts on there. Uh, although, as I say, I've not watched the first one yet. Satan assumes many forms. He has been seen as a prince, a peasant, a friar, a dog, a pebble, a pitchfork, but, as legend has it, never as a fount of holy water. When schoolboy revolutionary Malcolm McDowell concluded If with a hail of gunfire, director Lindsay Anderson and screenwriter David Sherwin were heroes. Its rambling sequel, Oh Lucky Man, got a lukewarm reception, and in 1982, the loose Mick Travis trilogy concluded with the astonishingly unpopular Britannia Hospital, where the same team offer their savage caricature of a Britain sinking under authority, tradition, the class system, and mankind's worst instincts. While McDowell returns, the central character here is Leonard Rossiter as beleaguered administrator Norman Potter, fighting a losing battle to keep his hospital in a fit state to receive a royal visit, while faced with protesters, riots, striking staff, and two kinds of hatchet job, one from an expose-seeking media freelancer, the other from a revered experimental surgeon with a demented agenda. So, with a couple of earthquakes, three famines, a hijack, and a preemptive nuclear strike, aren't we the lucky ones to be tucked up all snug and cosy here in Britannia Hospital? Now, it's a very special day here in Britannia, so let's have some very special smiles to go along with it. So, at 16, I joined the army, um, left home, because... I was sick of it basically <laughs> and that seemed like the easiest option uh, oh how wrong I was um, you couldn't set up a podcast in those days could you? unfortunately I, maybe you could no no they wouldn't 1995 no no no, no, no. it wasn't the time of podcasts fanzines yeah <laughs> I should have done that lived in a box and made fanzines yeah and as part of my training we often had to go into a lecture hall and we'd be lectured on various kinds of things nuclear nuclear biological and chemical warfare or first aid that kind of stuff but one day I've got this memory we were shown a, a montage of uh, scenes from certain films I don't know why we were shown this but there was a scene where a woman is g- trying to give a row of 
riot police. She's trying to offer a flower to one of them. And there's this pause, and then the riot policeman just like smacks her in the face. And it's a really striking, harsh um, image. And everyone who was sat in the lecture hall at the time, all around me, were just like, yay, cheering. I was like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> what is going on here? And I never knew what that film was until quite recently when I watched Britannia Hospital, and it's from there. Yeah, Lord knows what Lindsay Anderson would have thought if he knew this. If he knew this clip was being used, this is how the British Army use, uh, yeah, yeah. train their boy soldiers. <laughs> and can you remember? I know this is a while back, but can you remember if they then continued the clip with the scene of the riot police taking on the protesters while "God Save the Queen" was playing? No, they didn't. <laughs> and you deserted quite soon after. Yeah, well, I was kicked out. <laughs> oh dear. We, we, we don't have to talk about that. No, for another time. That'll be an Easter egg. <laughs> um, it's a good scene to bring up because Britannia Hospital is, well, certainly when it came out for a long time, had such a terrible reputation and awful reviews. And yet that has always been not my favourite scene, but it's the scene where t- certainly I think really good filmmaking and it gets right to the heart of the anger of Lindsay Anderson and, and David Sherwin here and it's absolutely about authority versus the people yeah um, but we're getting ahead you'd not seen this before no I've only out of the Mick Travis trilogy I've only seen If I've always known about A Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital but I've just never got around to watching them um, If I've seen a number of times but yeah but because If's the best known and um, to give a little bit of history when that came out it was well it was a good film but it came out with great timing because there was revolution going on around the world in Paris campuses in America belatedly London with uh, Vanessa Redgrave Captain um, the Zeitgeist oh yeah it was, uh, <laughs> Lindsay was surfing the Zeitgeist back then <laughs> yeah. but yeah it came out and had um, I mean like I say a good film but absolutely captured that spirit of youthful um, revolution trying to sweep away the establishment by the time this came out in 1982 you've got this creative team who seem very cynical um, they've seen it all they haven't got a lot of hope for Britain certainly but probably humanity in general mm. and it had like I say if if came out opposite all this other stuff that was going on in the world and it seemed to really capture what was going on this came out absolutely opposite the Falklands War so suddenly an unprecedented really yeah, timing unprecedented amount of flag waving and patriotism and jingoism so it absolutely sunk I'm not I don't think it got much of a release but what reviews it did get were absolutely scathing and Lindsay Anderson was regarded as a sourpuss <laughs> and um <laughs> with an enormous chip on his shoulder if I can remember the Jeremiah uh, a soapbox Jeremiah <laughs> with an enormous chip on his shoulder was the quote yeah oh. from uh, I think Halliwell all time out mm. but it has been reassessed in the last 10 or 15 years and um, it's something I, I was very familiar with I mean we're, we're watching this now um, a recommendation from two listeners isn't it? Uh, yeah it is Christopher Brown and uh, Horatio Horatio uh, <laughs> thank you guys and it has been, yes it has been reassessed and um, I've seen this many times but not for quite a while and I was surprised watching it for this podcast it still really holds up and in fact probably better than ever I think um, mm. one of the things I really like about it um, is again something that's it's been criticised for it doesn't seem to have any sympathy for anybody in it because um, as we explained in the introduction you have these terrible events going on around this hospital which is receiving a royal visit but you'd, you'd usually within all that chaos there'd be some character you're identifying with um, 
and you're always told in script writing guys that that's how you have to do it but really do you have to mm, no, I quite no. like the fact here that everybody gets a certain amount of uh, a boot the, the, the flack is spread out isn't it it's um yeah, it's really admirable, I think, to do that. I mean, I, I was like three years old when this came out, so <laughs> it was a long, long time ago. But I imagine watching it in those times, it it must have been... A, but I think it's the kind of thing that people would have been scared of. The two, it, It's really analysing um, a society that is going to the dogs, and people don't like that, like you say, you know, on the back of all that um, national pride and jingoism and stuff. This, this is like the shit on the bottom of your shoe is mm. it's the kind of thing you just want to get rid of because <laughs> the only this has only just occurred to me but this would have come out when the british film industry was chariots of fire and celebrating the past whereas this was actually going no 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 this is what's going on now this is an hour and this is what yes. potentially um the world's going to end up like or yeah um because yeah because when i was watching it as you do you often watch an old film you think wow that's like the the predicting things that it's pressing no it's just it's actually a comment on the times but it's just that it's sad to think that times haven't changed that we're still like living like this basically which is well you know it's quite it's quite upsetting well yeah um because this doesn't have any sympathy for anyone possibly not for any single character watching this now there are a lot of anti-capitalist protesters in there so they're they're not represented by any single person but i think anderson and sherwin's sympathies are absolutely with those people yeah yeah um if anything there is a bit of a call to arms here and saying you know bloody well get out there and stop this happening mm. by whatever means necessary um even though you probably won't find me uh, smashing down the barricades <laughs> i i admire that especially because he'd have been a armchair anarchist <laughs> yeah uh, especially he'd have been i'm not sure how old anderson would have been then but getting on quite a bit yeah, I think. Would have thought so. yeah in fact just before he went off to do things like wells of august <laughs> with lily and gish yes mm. well uh, it'd be nice to sort of have talk about also like the performances and stuff maybe we don't want to get yeah. too political on the show. <laughs> no, no, no. People might start getting mis- I've already said I was in the army. God knows what people think. <laughs> but yeah, I so, mean, there's a whole host of classic British um, sitcom stars. Sitcom stars, yeah. Yeah, when I first saw this, I found that really peculiar because you're used to seeing them in much more, um, yeah, cosy, uh, familiar little settings. And the fact that this. It's a very political film, it's violent, and also, which we'll move on to in a moment, has some really outstanding gore effects in, which are unexpected. So it's a bit odd to see that contrasted with people you're more used to seeing at sort of seven o'clock in the evening. Leonard Rossiter and, um, well, Leonard Rossiter, I suppose most people know, is uh, Rising Damp Reggie Perrin. Yeah, uh, I mean, Reggie Perrin, quite an odd sitcom, but nothing like this. No, no, definitely not. Um, Did that... Did that have any effect on you? Did sort of not particularly. I mean, I think I'm sort of young. I'm I'm of an age where mm. I wasn't really growing up. There was a, there were other people who I'd be yeah. more familiar with. Um, so yeah, it was for me. It was just interesting. I've always had this thing in my mind where whenever I see any British actors in films, even if it's a British film, it's like, oh wow, they're in a film. There's always that association. Big. Yes, yeah. Because Leonard Rossiter, of course, is one of the few people who worked with Stanley Kubrick twice, and he's a really good actor, and I think he's a he does a great job here, as, as always. Um, you're not thinking of his other famous performances when you see this character. He's absolutely... Yeah, you know, I've always thought as Rossiter is... It? It's kind of almost from the same mould as Peter Sellers in some way. Well, Peter Sellers also worked with oh, yeah. Kubrick twice. <laughs> exactly. so, um, 
But the other main actor here is Graham Crowden, who who did appear in the earlier Lindsay Anderson films, in fact playing the same character, mm. uh, Professor Miller, who's this Frankenstein-like surgeon, um, who's arrogant, but no doubt a genius. And he's really at the heart of this movie, um, which leads us to the gore effects. Yeah, I, d- I don't really want to say too much because no, I, let's I, not I watched, spoil them. However. I watched it cold mm. and I was really quite blown away. Mm. I mean, people know that we covered Bad Taste in mm. the first show, which has some pretty spectacular gore effects. But they're throughout the film. Throughout this the film, this has a particular scene that is so jarring. Not necessarily in a like makes you uncomfortable mm. and why is that in the film kind yeah. of way. It's just so well done because yeah, like. there is a build up to it throughout I think you know this is coming so I don't really mind us mentioning it because mm. the atmosphere is there to say this is coming this is coming and, but when it happens it's um, I mean I just love the idea that this is something that was meant to be a demonstration for the Queen Mother to sit through <laughs> this um, this man that's made up of pieces of hospital sweeping that's been sewn together which I don't know I'm maybe reading too much into it however this is a political movie um, I don't know if that was meant to be some metaphor for... This is what society is made up of now. If you stick people together, it doesn't really work, mm. which would be... I mean, I'm hoping it isn't that, because that would be quite a sort of Daily Mail reader kind of response, isn't it, amongst all this other stuff? I doubt it. I think I, I think it's overbalanced the other way mm. in some regards. So. But, I mean, getting down to the heart of it, as a Frankenstein monster, I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, it looks kind of plausible. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't want to say yeah. too much because I think it, is, it takes the edge off it a little mm. bit. But I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it will spoil it to mention that's there because I think you know it's coming. However, we won't talk any more about that particular scene. No, well, I mean, if you've got the Region One DVDs, it's plastered all yeah, over. Yeah, I think <laughs> as with a lot of films we've covered, whoever the PR people are suddenly decide, oh, that's the striking image, and we're going to stick that on, even though they're usually key moments, you know. Idiot. Uh, Buffoons. Yeah. Did you actually find this funny though? Oh yeah, I was. You yeah, were chuckling along. I was chuckling all the way. I wasn't like barely laughing that often. The well, one of the gore moments, I I was laughing very hard. But um, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, it's a bit like a Terry Gilliam film. Or um, a bit like Brazil, say, compared to say Jabberwocky, where there mm. are these like set pieces or bawdy slapstick. Because people have said this is slapstick, basically, to some degree, uh, because it's not it's not um, clever enough to be satire. I think was levelled at it. I don't know. Way. I think that's lazy criticism. Because yeah. I think across these, um, well, not so much in F, but certainly in Oh Lucky Man and Britannia Hospital, something that gets trotted out regularly as an insult is, you know, oh Anderson thinks he's all well or swift, yeah. but this is much more like something the Carry On team would have done. Which um, works in its favour, I think. Yeah, I think that sounds quite intriguing. You know, what the uh, what the idea of something as low grade as the Carry On team trying to do something, uh, <laughs> something as grand as Swift or Orwell. Um, the Carry On films, if anyone's lucky enough to be unfamiliar with them, were. Uh, are you a fan? Yeah, I love Ferry. Yeah, I grew up with. They them. were churned out ensemble comedies, but they mostly um, concentrated on toilet humour and uh, boob gags. Um, but yeah, as a comedy, I think this. I'm not laughing at it very much. However, I do. It's it's maybe something I've said in an earlier show. I think if you do have a serious point to make, often presenting it as comedy works because it makes you question. Well, hold on, I shouldn't be laughing at this, should I? This mm. is quite a serious. If you can say that to an audience, I think your message is getting across 
better than if you were just preaching, you know. And an example of that would be something like um, Blackadder Goes Forth, the one set during the the First World War, when you've got this sort of knockabout comedy for six episodes, but then this ending which brings you up quite short, and everyone remembers. Um, I think this works as well. Yeah, definitely. It's it's very skillful to do something like that as well. I think mm. um, it can be easily lost in the tone. <laughs> yeah. So you're curious to watch Oh Lucky Man now? Yeah, I've got it on order from Amazon, yeah. so it should um, be turning up soon. I've not seen that for a while, but compared to this, uh, Oh Lucky Man's criticised for being a bit too rambling because it does go on for around three hours, I th- which it works in the favour of Britannia Hospital because I think it's so focused and angry. As usual, we won't spoil the ending, but did that work for you? Because this was the first time you'd seen it, and I'm often curious because it so rarely happens now with, with modern films, Hollywood films. Um, usually you'll go into a film and you've got a good idea of where it's going to be going from the first few minutes but with this with everything going wrong everything at flashpoint did you have any inkling of where it was going to how it was going to resolve itself no i just had bizarre sort of surreal ideas of maybe where it would go you know like a, a nuclear bomb would land on the hospital or something yeah um you know something as far fetched as that because it is just that you know how how are they going to tie it up so i was quite surprised by the end i found it um Sort of pleasingly ambiguous. I'm mm-hmm. still like the. I'm still out on yeah, the jury's out. Obviously, on that. we're not going to say what happens at the end, but for me, I think it works, and it's probably the best ending you could come up with for this. Um, but it almost seems as if at that point, it's not breaking the fourth wall or doing anything clever, clever like that. But it almost seems like Anderson and Sherwin are sort of directly addressing the audience. Yeah, and not saying this is what you have to do, but saying this is what the situation is. And then wake up. Yeah, well, and then the fact that it doesn't present a solution to it is uh, fantastic. Um, but but yeah. yeah, like questions, you know, questions can are often more important than answers. Oh, what is the thing? Yeah, answers are easy. It's asking the right kind of questions, yeah, which is difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, and you know, just going back to that whole thing about the sitcom cast, it reminds me when I first saw this, and the reason it was uh, probably did make a big impact on me. It came out. Uh, it, sorry, it was first shown on TV. I, th- I think Christmas, nineteen eighty-three. So it must have really flopped to have been on as quickly as that. But I was just watching TV with my mum and dad, and they saw this film was on with Leonard Rossiter and Arthur Lowe and people. And thought, oh, we'll give that a whiz. It had already been on for a good half an hour. And the scene we were watching was Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, <laughs> off his box on mushrooms and grass. Nicaraguan uh, weed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> watching Battery Chicken documentary, wasn't it? Yeah, with uh, with Frank Grimes. And um, and then just this whole lead through of um, um, Graham Crowden's Frankenstein project was clearly coming, although we didn't get to see any of that. And it got to the commercial break, and we'd been in silence for the whole thing, and my mum went oh the news starts on the other side in five minutes and my dad went yeah I can't stick much more of this <laughs> how's McCready progressing beautifully we're expecting death within the hour splendid I have great confidence in McCready before delving into fantasy adventures and Rolling Stones promos animator Ralph Bakshi was known for the sort of social satire that pushed an awful lot of people's buttons never more so than with 1975's Coonskin where stereotype representations of the black American experience are mashed together with a bewildering mix of live-action footage, music and lunatic animation to create an eye-popping nightmare. The loose plot has a ramshackle jailbreak interrupted by a prisoner's fable concerning Three Hood's fight against their enemies and violent rise through the criminal world. Yeah, 
The potter smacked the rainbow's end. Brothers and sisters living on the top of the heap. No more soft-shoeing, happy-acting, back-busting. Harlem. Harlem. I really enjoyed this. I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, although, yeah, it does raise a lot of problems, because... For me, the only problem was the name of the film. The name of the film, which has been... The producer, is it Ruddy? Albert S. Ruddy, yeah. yeah. It was his idea, and... What at all? And Bakshi was a little bit... Uh, he wasn't too pleased with it, and I think it apparently... It called Harlem Nights, mm. or Harlem Days. No, Harlem Nights, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, obviously quite a confrontational title. Or, well, is it confrontational? If it's a producer, it's possibly just there to deliberately to kick up a bit of a stink and yeah to provoke uh, a publicity reaction. free publicity <laughs> which it really did so seriously was that your only problem with the title because to explain the characters in this it is mostly animated and it's uh, a crime spree with these three characters um, one of whom is played by Barry White or voiced by Barry White even though they're anthropomorphic animals it's a fox a bear and a rabbit they're meant to be Afro-American aren't they I think we, we've both looked into this and we know what Max's intents were, but you can imagine people looking at that and thinking, hold on a minute. Yeah, but I mean, like any good satire should do that as well. It should make you sit up and really question what you're viewing, why you're finding it funny, make, yeah. make, make you look inside as well as look around you. And I think he absolutely nails it. I, I was yeah. really impressed with what I saw. No, you're right. A, a satire needs to have teeth to make any point, I suppose. It can't be genteel about it and just, oh, wouldn't this be... Would this be better? <laughs> well, it isn't. But yeah, we've 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 both looked into the background of this film, and Baxter's intent was to deliberately use a lot of the um, caricature images of black people um, from American history. But also, what I think is great about it is it go it uses the Uncle Remus stories as well. This yeah. is why one of the characters is a rabbit and has direct references to some oh, of the right. Br'er Rabbit stories. But made in 1975, direct relation to black exploitation movies because I think. I mean, I'm, I'm drawing this conclusion. I'd imagine that was Bakshi saying, this is how black people are represented now. They're always glamorous criminals, you know. It's, Definitely, yeah. yeah. I don't think in itself it's meant to be a celebration of being a an original gangster. I, yeah, th- there's no celebration of anything, I don't think, really, in this movie. It, it's, it's a very... Um, like uh, Britannia Hospital, that is someone who's actually quite upset at what they're witnessing around them. There's a number of sequences with mafiosa characters, like Godfather type characters, and that. And Bakshi's been quoted as saying he saw, he remembers seeing the Godfather. I think that's where he met Albert S. Ruddy, actually. Oh, possibly. Uh, or maybe it might have been Cat Steve Katz, who he did Heavy Traffic with, yeah. and Fritz the Cat. And he was horrified by the way people reacted to. Brando and uh, Pacino and well, all sort of, of them admired them as aspirational these, figures. Yeah, who basically, you know, they've got this. There's this poor mother figure who watches all their sons get killed by at the hands of their father. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is a big theme in um, Coonskin, as well as all the the racial uh, stereotyping that has gone throughout American history um, through film through. Uh, comics yeah uh, music, every representation every, and, yeah and yeah um again i think Bakshi's on record saying it's not anti-black anti-italian because the mobsters come in for a lot of the american italian community comes in for a dig here cops everything um his big problem is with con men and anyone who abuses and exploits people so yeah you thought this was a good movie uh, 
out of because quite recently we've uh, watched a few back shoots, haven't we? Yeah, we, we watched uh, Heavy Traffic. And we were both really blown away by that because I'd never heard of that. I knew Bakshi for Lord of the Rings and Fritz the Cat and just thought he was a bit of a, you know... One-trick pony. Yeah, so I was amazed to find that he actually had this run of social satires or whatever. Yeah. And, um, heavy oh, Traffic's fantastic, but let's not review that now. But no, this, no, no. this builds on that. Um, everything that's great about Heavy Traffic is kind of built on and expanded here. Definitely. I had the same, exactly the same thoughts when I was watching this a number of the same kind of characters voiced differently appeared um, but with a lot more um, oomph as it were I don't, uh, well again I think he gets to the nub of his anger like Lindsay yeah, Anderson uh, yeah they, like, he was nailing what obviously he was already plaguing him a little bit previously and yeah, he just really gets it down. I mean, he pulls no punches and I think it's bloody admirable that a white Jewish man attempts to pull this off yeah, although he wouldn't, obviously I'm not saying he's de denying his uh, ethnicity, but uh, um, is this right? Bakshi was in an all-black school, wasn't he? He regarded himself as very much part of that culturally. Yes, for a while, yeah. yeah. Because I think it was a close, the school was geographically close to where he lived, or mm. his family lived. and then But the school kicked him out because they were too scared of what the white community yeah. Yeah. thought. Mm. But yeah, I think he sees himself very much as part of that community. You didn't feel this went too far at all? No, I don't. What's too far? <laughs> um, well, obviously, yeah. The, the caricatures? Or yeah, absolutely the, the caricatures. Because as much as I love this, I think I would be uncomfortable if uh, anyone I knew was black came around and you know wanted a film recommendation. I, I would probably hold off on this because you can't know how other people are going to react to it. So. I think that he's saying a lot here and I think he's saying a lot that's important he's raising lots of issues which are pertinent today but at the time must have been tenfold and I think it's a very brave piece of filmmaking and that's that's what stands up for me that's the the overriding factor of this whole experience when I was watching it, it was he was really going out on a limb both uh, as an artist as as a person, really, mm. yeah, the the yeah, it's misguided, misguided parts of it are probably the the naming of the film, which isn't in Bakshi's uh, hands anyway, and the caricatures, but that gives it a lot of power, doesn't that it? Gives it, yeah, because it does make you stop. Teeth yeah. to the to the bite. It does make you stop and think. Well, why might I have a problem with this? Mm. Actually, the one thing I would be uncomfortable with this is the representation of women, which I think was a sort of bit of a thing with Bakshi anyway he he does not all of his female characters are just floozes but he does seem very keen on um bouncing doolies <laughs> you know and I know that was part of 70s counterculture and whatnot but uh that's I feel a bit bad saying this but that's almost the thing now when I'm watching it I'm thinking <sighs> rather than obviously <laughs> it's it's not you'd think several times before doing a film like this now in fact even at the time I don't know whether I'm like in, slightly inured to it but you see a lot of bouncing doolies it itself sounds quite bad yeah but that, I mean that seems superfluous to the message of the film I think overall when we discussed heavy traffic that was that was an issue but well building on heavy traffic um, which if people don't know was again this is sort of um, quite a ghetto kind of story wasn't it with 
quite an I keep using the word hallucinatory but I think that's one of the great advantages of animation is you can go anywhere with it um, and all too rarely that it's it's all too rare that that happens now I think um, even though I know it's a really painstaking thing to do animation these two films Heavy Traffic and Coonskin I think there are so many scenes in that which are just it's a cliche but mind-blowing it really feels like you've got into the into somebody's head and you're seeing sort of all sorts of private nightmares that are going on there. Things morph into other things way before you had CGI, which can do that, and it now seems a bland thing. But it's still a really striking thing to watch. In um... there's an amazing balance that he achieves with because the thing to note with this film as well is that it's um, it opens with a piece of animation, but then there's like a narrative framing device with the main body of the story is scat. A character played by Scatman Carruthers is relating this story back to someone else as they were trying to escape jail. Yeah, and yeah, the the animation sort of kicks in from then, doesn't it? As Scatman Carruthers is talking mm. about uh, the bear, the fox, bear, the and fox, and the, the rabbit. The rabbit. It's kind of like watching a lava lamp in some <laughs> ways. How these like abstract forms sort of appear and then make sense, merge into really, other yeah, things. Yeah, but with all this, like, there's an anchor of reality. You know, there's there's a wonderful segment where they they decide to go to Harlem, and I think they're coming from Iowa or somewhere like that. It's somewhere out in the flatlands, basically. And there's a guy playing a trumpet. This is real. Um, this is live footage of a guy playing a trumpet in a a snow-filled street, and it, it's really eerie and spooky. But it it's it's a brilliant device that draws you into like this is another section of the story isn't it yeah. Bakshi's fantastic at that because traditionally that combination of live action and cartoon is a disaster you know I think when Roger cool Rabbit <laughs> well let's not brain Bakshi for that I think he got <laughs> a lot of interference but no um, when Roger Rabbit came out people say oh at last this works because you're used to watching Mary Poppins and the things just really jar with each other uh, whether it's the actors not they, the thing doesn't seem to work together and this and heavy traffic it seems obviously because he's so good at it but it seems effortless and he's created this again it just creates a really weird frisson of um, these animated characters in the foreground and the fact there are humans in the background it seems it's 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 a little bit like the Muppets with their human guests right um, obviously it's a, a totally different effect but it, it seems as natural as that yeah you know, it, but it well natural but it also creates a weird atmosphere yeah Superbly done, yeah. That's a really good uh, comparison. I never would have thought of that, but yeah, that ma that really makes sense because you can see that it it's completely at odds. There's a background which is just so anchored in reality, but what's going on with the characters? Is... I think he does tend to put a sepia tint on it, doesn't it? Which helps the transition. But yeah, it's a great effect because yeah, it does feel a bit like we say dreamlike a lot, but really it it does feel like there's some strange reality that's almost there and almost isn't and. Uh... I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm looking forward to watching the other. You, um, you've lent me a few of his others, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to watching those. American Pop and uh, Hey, Good Looking. Yeah, when this came out, one of the people it really upset was uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton, and I think it was one of these classic things of um, people attacking the film without bothering to watch it. Yeah. There was an assumption that it was Mary Whitehouse. Yeah, um, and I just found that odd because one of the one of the first really bizarre scenes in this is when they see Black Jesus isn't it it's kind of hugely overweight evangelist oh, yeah. who I thought was like a 
Rick. Rick James? Rick James. Really? I thought it was Rick. like Rick James, Little Richie, James Brown, all put into this big, grotesque looking yeah. character. He looks hideous, but completely naked. So there's yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of schlong flying around here. But it, a bizarre sequence. I think the idea of that was, again, um, uh, that character's meant to be exploiting... False idols. Yeah. yeah. Um, although, yeah, he's meant to be exploiting his audience who have legitimate grievances but at the end he's just sort of stirring up hatred and then passes around the uh they're not even collection trays are they they're on the end of huge sticks mm. and they're going to um the funding from that's going towards weapons and whatnot to kill whitey yeah well yeah i mean they're represented white is represented by pictures of john wayne elvis and nixon isn't <laughs> yes. it which is just so uh so nailed so perfectly i think <laughs> But yeah, I just I I was wondering if Al Sharpton was more upset by that than the actual. Well, you never saw it. He, um, Apparently not. Maybe maybe one of his lackeys got hold of the script. Well, he he was actually paying people to go into showings of this and boo, wasn't he? Um, yeah. Because again, in common with Britannia Hospital, this was a flop, I think, wasn't it? Yes. And is now really well regarded. It's probably it's... seen as one of his best best films, but. I can Di- see why. Yeah, mm-hmm. but again, difficult to get hold of. I think I read it was going to be issued with a reversible sleeve. So Last could, year. Yeah. And then there was copyright issues. Allegedly copyright issues, yeah. yeah. A real, real shame. So as voice talents, do you think the guys in this work? You've got uh, Scatman Crothers, who everyone knows as Hong Kong Fooey, but also in The Shining. And uh, I think he's fantastic, isn't he? Great. He's, he's <clears throat> he actually opens the movie by singing a song which Bakshi pen the lyrics for yeah Crothers did the music and yeah it's, and it's it really it, it sets gets, the tone it sets the tone it draws you in and it perfectly captures what the the film is about as a whole I thought Scatman Crothers was great Barry White as well brilliant I loved it he reminded me of um the chap from uh, Live and Let Die you know the big guy Whisper I think Whisper yeah. like that yeah you know Barry Barry he's, he's got a good voice baby but he's he's fantastic. I'm sure I know everyone. I think except for Charles Gordon, who plays the preacher in it, mm. who's absolutely off his head. He's isn't he? He's he is brilliant. But I think he was really looking forward to doing this. Everyone else was obviously having sort of, oh, I don't know what this is going to do for my career. Because <laughs> yeah, Barry White's character in it actually ends up naked and getting led around by, literally led around by his cock in a few scenes I'm not sure if he was aware that was going to be happening but uh, fairly typical of the uh, atmosphere in this movie just another scene I wanted to mention is like I think I said earlier it sort of really sort of mainlines into someone's nightmare but when we get to see the mob characters I was really knocked out by some of the the imagery the imagery the other characters in that because yeah the godfather figure in it is it's an uncredited Al Lewis who's famous as Grandpa Munster although he actually kind of looks like Grandpa Munster the caricature they've done of him looks horrendous yeah really um, really grisly his little helper though yeah the monkey clown it's a kind of Italian uh, Italian clown with with monkey like yeah it sort of goes around on all fours all fours um, he's like dangling by ropes big ears very small and speaks with a little boy's voice yeah he's but also against this entourage, you've got this henchman with no head, just a big, a huge, big bulking guy with dungarees and no head, and these strange little mosquito women, one of whom doesn't have a face, and there's no real reference to what they're about, and it just seems like you can imagine Bakshi just sketching these and not, you know, without 
not just something that came off the top of his head, but absolutely, like, this is a nightmarish image I have, and this is what we're going to be doing with it. There must have been teams and teams of animators actually, you know, bringing this to life. But things like that, I, I love that. Because there's Wikipedia makes a point of mentioning that he hired black animators to... He was one of the first people to do that, um, whether or not that's pertinent. Maybe that was from some of their ideas, you know, like the the he might have given him uh, the brief and then this, you know, you need this horrible nightmare situation. What would you do? And you know, the, the, those are real like personal sort of demons, there, aren't they? Yeah, it it seems to come from nowhere. They kind of. I'm All not going to say they're archetypes. In the background, you've got. Um, steel workers working in these huge uh, mills, factories, mills, yeah, steel industrial, mills. Yeah. yeah. And then in the foreground, you've got all these fucking weird Italian mafioso characters with their fairies and yeah, they're kind of headless. well, they do make the buzzing noise. So, but mm. <sighs> nuts, you're not sure where it's coming from, and it's so nice to see something like that that isn't. They're not archetypes. They do make sense to you, but they do seem like someone's very personal demons and sort of going back to heavy traffic which I remember had quite a prominent scene with um, a couple of drag queens I think yeah. drag queens are very prominent in this as well they so are I'm not sure which, which areas of New York back she was hanging out with or, or hanging out in the cool, cool side of town obviously. yeah obviously <laughs> yeah but um, yeah that's another sort of prominent thing and the bizarre scene with the cop who's slipped an acid cube and that's, that was great, man. He's getting, yeah. He gets blacked up. And blacked up, stuck in a nightdress with watermelon <laughs> boobs. And kills, framed for a murder. Kills and, his uh, yeah. two... Well, they're partners in crime, aren't Yeah, because he's a bag man for the mafia. This is a corrupt cop. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. usually I'll show away from spoilers, but to mention that doesn't give you any hint of what the actual scene's like. It's just absolutely... Skimming the surface. Absolutely nuts. Um, so yeah, I mean, just to sum it up, um, an amazing film, and I well, I can understand why it's not better known and not widely available, but really do hunt this down. Yeah, um, for all you people who amazingly have hunted out the falls because of our review, I'd say definitely go out there and do this. It's, it's just as rewarding. Yeah, I'm sure there's never been a comparison between those two. But yeah, I mean, the whole idea... I really think, yeah, I think they're the worthy. Yeah, the idea of the podcast is to get people curious and hopefully people tell us about films they want us to see covered as well. But yeah, this really highly recommended. I wish all this talking and streaming about revolution would stop. I'm tired of trying to segregate, integrate and masturbate anymore. HK2, take you know, down Listen, listen, the longer we wait, the longer we're going to end up... Like, like Malcolm and King did. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I'll drink the Uh huh. Yeah. I'm a minstrel man. I'm the cleaning man. I'm the pole man. I'm a shoeshine man. I'm a nigger man. Watch me dance. Shabby doo doo, shabby doo doo, shabby doo, shabby doo, baby.